0: Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together as we sit. Our Father in heaven, we ask today that you would help us to understand your word. We seek your kingdom and we knock Praying that you would enable us today to marvel afresh at the great good news of the gospel and be those who hand our lives wholeheartedly over to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose perfect and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, on June the 15th, uh, 1215, halfway between Windsor Castle and the centre of London, a group of barons gathered on a marshy area of land just next to the River Thames. This high-level assembly at Runnymede was preceded by months of wrangling as they demanded an end to the extortionate taxation of wicked King John. The document was to be the final agreement and was to become one of the most significant pieces of paper in all history. Known as the Magna Carta Libertatum, the Great Charter of Freedom, For the first time ever, it placed the king under law. It was the birth of the idea of the rule of law and of common law, which was to reshape England forever and form the foundational charter of the Constitution of the United States of America. The charter lay out basic principles of human rights that people should be treated with respect for the first time in English jurisprudential history, the rights of women and children who in entitled to property was respected. It established the principle of justice, the principle of habeas corpus, or show me the body. In other words, innocent until proven guilty. An epoch-making moment, the Magna Carta, enshrined into history, so much so that every school student knows about it. Well, this morning as we turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, and it would be great if we could turn back there if we've closed our Bibles, we come to the Magna Carta Libertatum of the Christian faith. So central is this one verse to the Christian faith, it is known simply as the golden rule. Jesus says, Therefore, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And there are two points that I want us to see this morning. The first I'm calling kingdom perfection. And then we move on to kingdom provision. First of all, kingdom perfection, verse 12. And then we'll go to kingdom provision as we see that the material before this verse is the provision we need to obey this verse. Kingdom perfection, therefore, says Jesus. And that word therefore in verse 12 is highly significant. I was taught as a young Bible student that when you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. And it's there. Because verse 12 functions as the executive summary of the entire Sermon on the Mounts. In actual fact, of all the law and the prophets. In actual fact, verse 12 is really a summary of the entire ethical system, the entire moral teaching of the whole of the Bible. So much so that Gandhi carried a copy of it wherever he went, believing that it was the sketch of what the perfect society looked like. Now, all religions have an ethical system a little bit like this. In Hinduism, Hindus are taught that the sum of duty is to do naught to others, which if done to thee would cause thee pain. In Buddhism, the ethic is hurt not others with that which pains yourself. Actually, in Islam, in the Hadith, Muslims are placed under an obligation, quote, no one of you is a believer until he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself, the good of our neighbor. But in each of these, the uh, objective is to do no harm to your neighbor or to wish your neighbor well. What Jesus does here is to widen it out so much further. Not just negatively, don't harm your neighbor, but positively, do them the good you want for yourself. And it's not just like in the Hadith, a principle and a desire. It is something we are to do. This then is a sister text to Matthew 22. As Jesus announces, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it was Pascal who once said that all men seek happiness, this without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to that end. The cause of some is to go to war, for others, avoiding it. It is the same desire. They will never do anything but for the search for happiness. And the point is that we are all Perfectly committed to our own happiness. When I'm hungry, I will find food for myself. When I'm lonely, I will search for company for myself. I am committed to my welfare, my reputation, my security, and my success. And what Jesus is saying is that we need to turn the tables. Now we need to invert the principle we need to swing it around. And whatever we're committed to for ourselves, the golden rule demands, we are perfectly committed to for the other. So how would you like people to treat you? It's a no-brainer. You want people to treat you honestly, graciously, patiently, understandingly, joyfully. So then in your relationship with those around you, be honest and gracious and patience and joyful and understanding. How would you like it is the principle that lies behind the golden rule. That thing then that you're about to say about that other person, or do to that other person, ask, the golden rule says, how would you like it to be said of you? How would you like that thing to be done to you? And if on reflection you'd rather it wasn't said of you or done to you, there is then a massive stop sign, a massive spiritual red light, stop, danger, go no further. But if actually you'd love that to be said of you or done for you or to you, it is a massive green spiritual light. Proceed and do it. The backdrop to this command then is Leviticus 19 verse 18. As the law of God given at Sinai announces, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this, is the entirety of the law and the prophets condensed here. There's an old story which is true of a stranger who came to a leading rabbi. His name was Rabbi Hillel in the first century. He led one of the two schools of rabbinic thoughts in Jesus' day. The request was an odd one. Teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot. And actually, it's a good point, isn't it? If you can't explain something simply in, I don't know, 10 or 15 to 20 seconds, we haven't really understood it. Rabbi Hillel taught him this, quote, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole of the Torah. And the rest is commentary. And in the book of James, James calls this principle the royal law. Because at the heart of Christianity is not an ethic of rights, but one of responsibility. The Christian faith is not about what I demand, it is about the duty I am to show. And all of this jars, doesn't it, in our age of entitlement. This is a rights-based culture workers' rights and women's rights, ethnic minority rights, human rights, and gay rights. We're all conditioned into believing that life is all about me. But Jesus says, no, turn it around, flip the tables, put yourself in their shoes, and ask the question, how would you like it? Would you? like to be manipulated, well then don't manipulate. Would you like to be bullied, then don't bully. Would you like to be deceived, then don't deceive. Would you like to be slandered, then don't slander. Would you like to be cheated, then don't cheat. But as I say, it's not just negative, don't, it's positive, do. Because as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, let no debts remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever else the law commands are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And I say that this golden rule is really a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Because all the various data points as we've gone through this sermon series really could have been avoided if we just summarized it with this one verse. Think about it, chapter 7, verse 3, and judging as you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and don't take out the log that is in your own. But actually, if we're following the golden rule, we won't be judging others, will we? What about chapter 6, verse 38, and loving our enemies, and praying for those who persecute us? Hard to do, isn't it? But actually, if the golden rule is our screensaver, and if the golden rule is our memory verse, it covers all of that. What about chapter 5, verse 27, and lust? Because everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart's. Well, we understand, don't we, that lust is a, is a form of theft. It's, it's turning a person into a thing for my own gratification. Marilyn Monroe famously said, a sex object becomes a thing. I hate being a thing. So we won't use and abuse people because of the golden rule. How would you like it? And it covers anger. There were 22,900 murders in the US last year, and 144,600 rapes. Think of those lives, every single one of them destroyed and tarnished, bruised and battered. But actually the golden rule would mean there would be no more rape, how would you like it? And no more anger and murder, how would we like it? Well, there's a program uh, on the BBC that I used to listen to, but I still do, actually, because I've got the app, which is great now. We can get the BBC app, and it's called The Moral Maze. It's a fascinating show on BBC Radio 4, and it goes on for about half an hour, and it's a fascinating uh, show for a whole range of reasons, but the format every week is the same. There's a panel, and... They normally comprise high level people like politicians and journalists and ethical advisors and bishops. And each week there's a moral question. What about euthanasia or stem cell research? What about embryo research or climate change? And they have to get witnesses in and think about the question and work through the moral implications of heading through this complicated moral maze as they weigh up the pros and the cons of this this difficult ethical dilemma. And very often we find ourselves in the moral maze with split-second decisions, spur-of-the-moment decisions on what should I say or do in this context now? And very often I can't think of the precise verse that applies to this complicated situation and I haven't got the pastor's number or even if I have and I've called him, he's not available. So what are we gonna do? See this verse, the golden rule, is like the pocket knife rule for Christianity. It's a fantastic aid to have handy. Go to this rule. Ask yourself the question. It's very simple. What would you like done to you now here? And that informs the framework, the ethic, the moral answer to how you should respond to her or him right now. Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, once said this. The golden rule is more admired than practiced by ordinary man. He goes on, in this place, our king gives us his golden rule. Put yourself in another's place and then act to others as you would wish others act towards you. Oh, that all men acted on it and there would be no more slavery, no more war, No more swearing, no more striking, no more lying, no more robbing. All would be justice and love. What a kingdom is this which has this law? And J.C. Ryle puts it like this, it settles the golden rule a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down Endless little rules for our conduct for specific cases. I don't know if you've got a household rule for your children or a work rule back at the office or in the factory. Just put this one up on the wall at home or at work. Make this your screensaver. For the moment we come under the kingdom of Jesus, we come under the rule of another. We enter into the family of Jesus and we become brothers and sisters together. Our father is the king of love and our brothers and sisters together with us are to be children of love. In 1 John, John puts it like this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God's And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. One of the things I always love to do when I'm looking at a family picture is to spot the likeness between the son and the father or the mother and the daughter. And it's a great thing, isn't it, to try and spot the family likeness. You can always see it. Sometimes it's slightly more difficult, but it's always there because they share the same genetic codes or DNA. Oh, you look just like your father. It's the cheekbones or the eyes or or, or the shape of the head. Gosh, you look so much like your sister. It's the frame or, I don't know, the eyebrows or something like that. When we are born into the family of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the saving work of Jesus, through union with Him, we are given the same DNA, spiritually speaking. We become parts of the family of love. We belong to the Father of love, saved by the Savior of love, energized by the Spirit of love to belong to the family of love. And as the Spirit begins His radical work, He will grow us into an increasing love as we are changed from selfish love to a selfless love for others. And this golden rule is to form the pattern, if you like, the template or the framework for how our relationships in this family of love are to be conducted. So do you want compassion? Then give compassion. Do you want mercy? Show mercy. Do you want respect? Show respect. Do you want to be served? Then serve. Do you want to be loved? Then show love in your workplace and in your marriage and in your family and here in your church. This actually is a complete correction then of the way that we live by nature. By nature, we are all narcissists. We are centered in on ourselves. We want what is best for ourselves, and the motto, which we learned at school, is me first. Sin and narcissism is always antisocial, because the essence of sin is me first. But the flip side of me first is you last, which is why sin is always antisocial and always strains and fractures relationships. So, if we expect to go around church or go around our family uh, with me first, we, we can't expect unity and peace. The essence of the gospel is not rights, me first, but responsibility, me last, as I give myself to an ethic of radical, selfless love. As I ask that disciplined and painful question, what would I want were the tables to be changed in this context now? John Newton was a famous Englishman of the 1700s and a very successful businessman. Only his business was as a slaver. As he headed to Africa, took the slaves up to Bristol and Liverpool and then out to the colonies of America. He made a fortune. Through a storm at sea and an illness that followed, um, he came to rethink his life. And eventually, to cut a long story short, became an Anglican pastor. And he wrote a book shortly after that in which uh, he thought about his past life. The name of the book was Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. It was published in 1788. And in that book, 1788, Thoughts on the African Slave Trade, he really meditated on the golden rule. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And it led him at great personal cost to become an abolitionist. As he then devoted his life to ending slavery, an industry he had promoted And this was the backdrop to the world famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. It was and is a revolutionary hymn because until that point it was regarded that the wretch was the slave. But Newton came to see that the real wretch was not the slave, but the slaver. The sinner, John Newton, Tony Jones, the wretch, was the sinner deserving of judgments who had not loved as Christ had loved. And it broke him and led him to the cross as he saw that Jesus had taken the full force of the judgments of God for the sin of the wretch, in the saving grace of the gospel of love. Because the place where the golden rule is seen in all of its perfection is in the life and death of Christ. Jesus is the personification of the golden rule. He is the law and the prophets. He is, verse 12, And that's why, as we're called to the golden rule, it's not as if we're called to some cold piece of legislation drafted up on Capitol Hill or over in Westminster. It is that we're called to live Christ's life by the power of His Holy Spirit, through union with Him, by His grace, which energizes us. He is the golden rule as He washes our feet, as He eats with sinners, as he cares for the adulterous woman, as he cleanses the leper, as he prays for his persecutors, as he dies for his enemies. Jesus is the law and the prophets. He is the ethic. He is the gospel of love. This then is the kingdom perfection that every single one of us who are Christian here this morning are called to this coming week. In everything you do this week, in every decision and relationship, ask, what would you want to be done to you here? And then, at every moment, in every context, relationship and decision, all of the time, go and do it. Kingdom, perfection. But the problem is, we can't do it. And that's why kingdom perfection must lead to kingdom provision, our second point this morning. As we move from verse 12 up north now to verse 7 and 8, because verse 7 and 8 in our text is to be the provision to enable us, verse 12, to live this perfection As Jesus says, verse seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. To him who seeks, he will find. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Each of these three verbs is completely and utterly humbling. If you're asking for something, it means you don't have it. If you are knocking, it's because the door is locked. If you're seeking, it's because you haven't found it. And all of us have been there. You've asked the employer for a job and he hasn't given it to you. Or you've asked him for a pay rise and it hasn't happened. Or you've asked the bank for a mortgage and the answer is no. Or or you've lost your car keys. You can't find them. Or you're locked out and you're knocking on the door but you can't get in. It is humbling to have to ask and knock and seek because the basis of entry into the kingdom of God is not merits but mercy. Like Newton, we are wretches who don't deserve the kingdom at all. Every single one of us deserves the punishment of eternal hell, but at the cross, Jesus suffers in our place as he takes my sin and pays my debt. So if we ask, verse 7, and seek and knock, Jesus says, because it's a kingdom of grace, we will be given. These are not suggestions. These are imperatives. And by the way, there are two types of imperatives in Greek arrowist imperatives which is to say a one off asking a one off knocking and a one off seeking done forever and then a continuous imperative as you keep asking and as you keep knocking and as you keep seeking these are continuous imperatives and the reason it's continuous is because the way you start the christian life is the way we continue to live the Christian life because the grace that we are given at the beginning is to be the grace we need every single nanosecond as we live the Christian life aiming for kingdom perfection. Keep on asking, says Jesus, and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. I don't know if you've seen or read Victor Hugo's classic Les Miserables, it tells the story of Jean Valjean, the peasant. He steals a loaf of bread and then goes to prison for 19 years of hard labor. He becomes a fugitive and eventually winds up at the door of the Bishop of Dange. He knocks and the bishop has compassion and he opens the door. And he gives him shelter and food, and he treats him with a dignity and a respect he has not known for 19 long years. And then the bishop explains, you see, Jean Valjean, this is not my house. This is the house of Jesus Christ This door does not demand of him who enters, whether he has a name, but whether he has a grief. You suffer, you are hungry, and you are thirsty, and you are welcome. And do not thank me, do not say that I receive you into my house. No one is at home here except the man who needs a refuge. Everything here is yours. For as he knocks on the door, he's given grace, shelter, refuge, and mercy. But the story is extraordinary as Valjean now repays this great kindness by stealing the silverware of the bishop. As he runs away in the middle of the night with the candlesticks in his sack, he's caught eventually and brought back by the police Expecting now a final rebuke from the bishop. The censure, if you like, of the moral law of the church. But actually what he discovers from the bishop is even more grace. Ah, here you are, says the bishop, looking at Jean Valjean in front of the sheriffs and the police. I'm glad to see you. Why don't you take my candlesticks too? They are yours. They are silver like the rest." They're worth 200 francs. Why did you not carry all of my silver away with the forks and the spoons? As he gives and gives grace to this wretch, Jean Valjean. And it's like that for us. Every single time you ask for grace, you will be given grace. Every single time you knock on the door of grace, you will be given grace. Every single time we seek for grace, you will be given grace. As we aim for a kingdom perfection, we cannot attain. There will be grace to cover the guilt of our sin. Every single time we ask for grace, the door of grace will be opened by the Father of grace, To give us grace. But will he? Will he answer with grace? Well, we say yes, but very often when we do actually ask, there is no answer. And I heard this week of somebody in England who called for an ambulance it took actually two hours for the ambulance to eventually arrive. And by the time it had arrived, the child that was having the asthma attack had died. And can it be like that with God and us that we ask and ask and ask and it doesn't arrive? No, God's promise is that every single time we ask for grace, he will give grace. No disclaimers, no small prints. No lawyer, term, and conditions to get out of the promise, it is certain. And to underline that in verse 9, Jesus tells us too many parables. What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, gives him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, verse 11, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask for him? The scene in verse uh, 9 and verse 10 is borrowed, I think, from comedy, but probably actually from tragedy. Verse 9, it's lunchtime at school. And little Johnny is opening up his sacked lunch. Only this morning it wasn't Mum that prepared it, but dad. So he unwraps the foil, he opens the bag, and it feels pretty solid. Is it a crusty sourdough loaf of bread? No, it's a stone. With a little note from dad, ha, thought you might enjoy eating this for lunch, you sick kid. Verse 10 is even darker, isn't it? Now, it's Christmas, and little Zach uh, all year has been asking for a goldfish. So it's Christmas morning, and he, he heads down to the tree, and there's what looks like a tank. And he unwraps it and puts his hand in to touch the fish, but it's not a fish at all. It's a deadly poisonous snake that sticks its hypodermic fangs into his hand and kills him instantly. And as dad comes down, he goes, ha, that'll teach him not to ask me for a fish. The point is, not even a Hitler would treat his children like that. And Jesus says in one of the great throwaway lines of Scripture, if you then are evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, it's an assumption that we understand that even an earthly father in all of his love is baseline evil. So if an evil, imperfect father knows how to give good gifts, and even though there are abusive fathers around, most fathers do know how to give good gifts, if... An earthly fallen father knows how to love his little kid and give the goods. How much more the perfect father in heaven? So, what is the gift? And in the sister text that is Luke 11, the gift is identified it is the Holy Spirit's. We are given the Holy Spirit once and for all at conversion. But the great work of the Spirit now in the life of the believer through union with Jesus is to empower us and to enable us to live the golden rule. So as we look at verse 12, I'm not on my own. It's not a cold, hard law handed down from on high, go and do it. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit's work to energize me, to empower me, to enable me, and to transform me. So progress is possible, and stasis is not needed anymore in the Christian life. In actual fact, there are two great mistakes Christians make, one or the other, A or B, and I suspect that all of us are in one or the other this morning. The first is what I wanna call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is about the end, and it's the end brought into the now. The idea is actually now I can be perfect. This was the great mistake of John Wesley and others uh, in the Holy Club in Oxford in the 18th century. Perfection is possible now. That's not right. But the other mistake is no progress is possible now at all. And that's not right either. We will be perfect only on the last day, but we are called to make progress for Jesus now, energized by his spirit, motivated by his grace, as we look forward to the return of Christ at the end of the age. The golden rule, a summary then, of the righteousness Jesus commands and expects of us this coming week. He summarizes in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And I just want you to imagine as I finish what your marriage would look like if you held to the golden rule this coming week? I want you to ask what your family would look like if only you held to the golden rule this week. What would your workplace look like, verse 12, if only you held to the golden rule this week or your church this week? What would it look like if you held to the golden rule this week? Jesus says, In everything, therefore, Treats people the same way you want them to treat you. And as we are cut down by our failure, we ask and seek and knock. And the Father will give us his spirits to enable us by grace. Let's pray together as we sit. Our Father, we ask indeed, we knock and we seek. We desperately need your help. We praise you for your mercy and ask that the spirit today would fill us and motivate us and enable us that we might be those transformed to live this life of love. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.